Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at issue number 607, July 27th, 1996, pounds pence. And underneath that rubbish new Kerrang! logo on the cover this week, it says Planet Rock every Wednesday. The cover stars on this week's Kerrang! are Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, we're splitting Red Hot Chili Peppers, their last interview. Machine Head LP. Pumpkin's Drummer Fired. Pantera Drug Overdose. On the Road with Alice in Chains. Metallica Lollapalooza Report. Win all their CDs plus eight pages of unseen photos. Plus Manix, Manhole, Joyrider, Pearl Jam and Pitch Shifter. If you'd like to get in contact with us here, we can be contacted via Instagram, Issues, Twitter, Pod, and email Issues at gmail.com. Also, the uh, singles of the week are put into a playlist for us by our friend Mark, and you can get those on the description for this podcast and also on our Instagram and Twitter page. There is a ton, an actual ton, to get through this week, so let's crack into it straight away. This issue was created with the following stimulants. The Phoenix Festival, seen next week's issue. A bottle of aspirin sent to us by Biohazard. The sight of Malcolm Dome in an Elvis wig, see below, bang him. Dinner with Satan, Entomb's glorious underworld show, MS Popcorn, Bourbon, Keanu Reeves in town, Paul Chesney Reeves making a tit of himself on GLR, a totally gratuitous picture of Joan Sims, Kerrang on Radio 1, The Big Breakfast, The Ozone, Good Stuff and In the Star, Time Out and every other weekly music mag on the planet. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We start this week with news. Pantera vocalist Phil Anselmo clinically died for five minutes last week after suffering a heroin overdose. Anselmo has issued a shocking statement in which he confesses to injecting a lethal amount of heroin after the band's recent hometown show in Dallas, Texas. Anselmo collapsed backstage after Pantera played at the Starplex Arena on July 13th. He was discovered unconscious by one of the band's road crew and rushed to Balor Hospital in downtown Dallas, where he was released a mere two hours later. And he was on stage with the band when they played in San Antonio, Texas a couple of nights later, as their co-headlining US Arena tour with White Zombie continued uninterrupted. Speculation quickly spread that Anselmo's collapse was due to a drugs overdose. When Kerrang asked the band's management company Concrete for a comment on the incident, a clearly agitated spokesperson said tersely, we have no comment to make. However, hours later, Anselmo evidently decided to issue his own brutally honest account of what happened in Dallas, which the band's US record company Electra faxed to the Kerrang office. Anselmo's statement reads, I, Philip H. Anselmo, immediately after a very successful show in Dallas injected a lethal dose of heroin into my arm and died for four to five minutes. There was no light, no beautiful music, just nothing. And then after 20 minutes, from what I heard later, my friend slapped me and poured water over my head, all basically trying to revive me. The paramedics finally arrived and all I remember is waking up in the back of an ambulance. From that point on, I knew all I wanted was to be back on the tour bus going to the next gig. Instead, I was going to the hospital where I was released very shortly. You see, I'm not a heroin addict, but I am, was, an intravenous drug abuser. The lesson learned here is that every nightmare ever heard about ODing and or heroin is terribly true. I since then have recovered completely, the Pantera tour uninterrupted. I intend to keep it that way. Special thanks to my family and friends who supported me and the fans who pumped me up on the hill. One message to everyone in this fucking world, 
I am not a weakling groping for sympathy. I will not die so easily. I'm here to piss off the music press for a long time to come. Anselmo's drug hell came just 24 hours after the Smashing Pumpkins were hit by the death of keyboard player Jonathan Melvoin from a drugs overdose and the subsequent arrest of drummer Jimmy Chamberlain. Chamberlain has now been fired by the Smashing Pumpkins. Nirvana will finally release their long-awaited live album through Geffen during December. A double CD, it will feature recordings made on the Seattle Trio's last ever European tour in 1994. Karen can exclusively reveal that the album will be titled From the Muddy Bank to the Wishka. The Wishka is the name of the river that runs through the late Kurt Cobain's hometown, Aberdeen. The material on the album has been drawn from shows the band played from 1989 to 1994. Surviving Nirvana members Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic have been painstakingly listening to hundreds of hours worth of live tapes with producer-engineer Andy Wallace in order to piece together the best possible live memorial to one of the most influential rock bands of all time. Sources close to the pair claim that what they've come up with is a truly live-sounding album, with most of the tracks left in their original raw state rather than cleaned up in the studio. As yet, the final track listing remains a closely guarded secret. Stay tuned for more details. Machine Head will release their much-anticipated second album in October, and the Bay Area stars have also confirmed that they will tour the UK before the end of the year. The quartet went into the studio late last month, where they are once again working with producer Colin Richardson and engineer Vincent Wojno, the team behind the band's acclaimed debut album Burn My Eyes. Machine Head are recording at the Plant Studios in Sausalito, California, where Metallica carried out much of the work for their current album load. Kerrang! can exclusively reveal that the new album will be titled The More Things Change and is scheduled to emerge through Roadrunner during early October. At present, only four song titles have been confirmed by the band. These are The Frontlines, Struck a Nerve, Violate and Ten Ton Hammer. All of which main man Rob Flynn claims are so heavy, they defy description. The titles really speak for themselves. Flynn also insists that the more things change will be even more intense than its predecessor. Don't expect Burn My Eyes Part 2 because that's not the way it's turning out, he says. But I can tell you that the album is shaping up to be heavier than even we ever imagined it could be. Things are going just great and the low end is just punishing. Machina will definitely start a lengthy world tour in support of the more things change. With shows in the UK and Europe, expect them to hit the UK in October. Pearl Jam have finally revealed the track listing for new album No Code due through Epic on August 27th. The running order is sometimes how how who you are in my tree smile off he goes red mosquito lukin mankind present tense i'm open black and white and yellow and around the bend that's interesting because sorry small caveat here black and red and yellow is actually a b-side that didn't appear on no code uh, it's one of the um b-sides that appeared on the lost dogs album as an outtake from the no code sessions sorry um nerd alert <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to reading this out who You Are will be released as a single on August the 5th with non-LP track Habit on the B-side. Uh, Habit is on the album, sorry, nerd alert again. The LP was co-produced by the band with longtime collaborator Brendan O'Brien using studios in New Orleans, Atlanta and Chicago, plus guitarist Stone Gossard's own Lifo Studios in Seattle. Surprisingly, vocalist Eddie Vedder seems to have been the main driving force behind the album. Most of the material on No Code was written by Vedder on his own, for the first time, he's also played guitar and sung on a Pearl Jam record. The band are expected to start a world tour shortly after the release of the record, with British and European dates still being finalised for October. Dog Eat Dog were involved in a near-fatal accident last week in Spain. The New York Funcore mob 
were traveling on a mountain road to Barcelona airport when the top of their tour bus hit the side of a rock face. As a result of the impact, the bus came within inches of plunging off the road and into a ravine hundreds of feet below. Fortunately, the band were unhurt, although they were badly shaken. However, they are continuing with their current European tour, which will bring them to the main stage at Donington on August 17th. Manhole bassist Rico is facing the real threat of a jail sentence following a recent incident outside the Astoria in London. A fight apparently broke out between Rico and the venue security guards in the street after the manhole man claimed that one of the bouncers had stolen his wallet. During the melee, the bassist is alleged to have hit a bouncer across the head with a baseball bat, cracking his skull. Police are currently investigating and Rico could now face criminal proceedings. If the case does go to court, the bassist will be forced to remain in Britain until the matter is resolved. The knock-on effect of this would be Manhole having to draft in a temporary replacement for their upcoming US tour supporting Biohazard. Whilst admitting that he did hit the bouncer with a baseball bat, Rico insists it was in self-defence. All this came two nights after Manhole were fired from their support slot on the Fear Factory European and UK tour. A row with bouncers at Manchester University led to the controversial LA rap uh, hardcore band being thrown off the tour. Amid accusations from Manhole singer Terry B, the Factory guitarist Dino Cazares was behind the decision, which, says the singer, was the culmination of a series of harassment during the tour. Cazares and Fear Factory declined to comment on the allegations. Smashing Pumpkins have fired drummer Jimmy Chamberlain, blaming his continued drug problems as the reason for his dismissal. The news comes just a few days after the band's touring keyboard player Jonathan Melvoin was found dead in a New York hotel room from a drug overdose, and Chamberlain's subsequent arrest on charges of being in possession of a controlled substance. The remaining members of the band, vocalist, guitarist Billy Corgan, bassist Darcy and guitarist James Iyer, released a joint statement about their decision to sack their troubled drummer. It reads... Today we are very sorry to tell our friends and fans that we have decided to sever our relationship with our friend and drummer Jimmy Chamberlain. This may come as a shock to some, to others not, but to us it is devastating. For nine years we've battled with Jimmy's struggles, with the insidious disease of drug and alcohol addiction. It has nearly destroyed everything we are and stand for. We have decided to carry on without him and we wish him the best we have to offer. The three of us plan to seek an immediate replacement and to finish the touring that we had started at the beginning of this year. We would like to thank everyone for their well wishes and support. The New Look Pumpkins are expected to resume their US tour on August 17th, where they're due to play the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Chamberlain will go to court in New York on August 13th to answer the drug charges and reports from the US suggest that the police are keen to make an example of him. What seems to have incensed authorities is that since it was made public that traces of a particularly dangerous brand of heroin called Red Rum, which is said to be twice as pure as most other brands of the drug, were found in Melvoin's body, demand for it has soared. It's now believed that the police will be looking for the courts to give Chamberlain a severe punishment which could lead to a jail sentence as a way of combating the newfound interest in Red Run. Next up in Kerrang! we have American news. Oh well, we would have American news if Kerrang! hadn't fucked up massively. So I started to record um, the American news just now, um, Don K in New York, and I started reading it and it was talking about Pearl Jam, uh, loose, uh, Stone Gossard's Loose Groove label being dropped, and then it went on to the story about Kiss and um, 
you know, the, the, their blow up uh, like figures not having enough air around the uh, groin area. And then I realised, hang on a minute, I read all of this last week. So I had a look back at last week's Kerrang! And um, they've, abs- they've replicated, <laughs> they've completely replicated last week's American news this week. So there is no new American news. I could read you last week's, but what's the point of me reading now again? You might as well go and listen to last week's. <laughs> oh, Kerrang. What a fuck up. Anyway, um, let's move on to On Location. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! On Location. This week, Paul Brannigan sees Joyrider film their new video. The scene that greets us as we arrive at Tooting Lido, where Irish pop punks Joyrider are shooting the video for their summer single, a cover of Jane Wielding's 1988 classic Rush Hour is bizarre to say the least. A group of 50s style bathing bells holding beach balls aloft are parading in front of a small stage where the cheeky portadown quartet are miming enthusiastically um, dotted around the periphery are an old wealthy looking couple, a red Indian, sorry native Indian, a slaphead in American trunks, and a couple of cheerfully obese women. The synchronized swimmers are just arriving too. What in the name of Satan's underpants is going on? Joyrider vocalist guitarist Phil Woolsey explains all. Kind of. Video directors always try to get on your side when they have to submit ideas for your videos, he says. Because this song contains the line, I'm so dizzy I can't see, every treatment we got was trying to capture the dizziness of the song and talking about traffic rush hours. This was the only one with a bit of imagination, but fuck only knows what it actually means. Rush Hour has been A-listed at Radio 1, which means you get to hear it at least 25 times a week and suggests that the song should provide the cheeky chaps with their first bona fide hit single. Today the boys are as cheerfully sarcastic and laid back as ever, more concerned about herbal relaxants than high art, but happily tolerating the mind-numbing tedium of constant lip-syncing. With the band occupied, we take the opportunity for a swift word with the Native American, 72-year-old Don Backhurst. Don, who has 26 years experience in the business, likes the song and is a bit of a chap, referring to another extra as an arsehole, and regaling us with amusing stories about other bands and actors with whom he has worked. Top man. During the break, Phil unleashes his suave Irish charms on some of the beach bells, swiftly changing the focus of his blarney when one girl's boyfriend turns up. Bugger. Further amusement is provided by the prima donna antics of a slaphead extra, who throws a bit of a tantrum when he's required to stay for an extra half hour. Later in the afternoon, a gaggle of local school kids and hired beefcakes, including the wondrously named John the Cockerel, arrive to don swimming togs and shiver their tits off in the name of art. Director Matthew Judd introduces the band, but as the assembled extras line up against the wall awaiting their big break, Phil lifts a megaphone and shouts, Get home to fuck! What a guy. When they're finished, the band sign autographs on napkins, plates and even swimsuits. Then Phil and bassist Simon Haddock are chucked into the pool, much to the lifeguard's displeasure. The pair chase after drummer Carl Alty to give him the same treatment, but a nippy sticksman evades their clutches and Phil painfully chips a front tooth when he takes a tumble. I never knew Scousers could run so fast, guitarist Mitch smiles. Not without a car stereo under his arm, anyway. We now come to this week's cover stars. Pretend best friend. As the Red Hot Chili Peppers reach the end of their world tour, the rumours are coming thick and fast. They hate each other, they're back on drugs, they're splitting up. It's all true, they tell Paul Brannigan in what could be their last interview. 
It's not just an ugly rumour, it's true. The Chili Peppers are a great band and I'm very lucky to have been a part of it. But I think we should go out on a high note and not flog a dead horse. Chad Smith, drummer with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, stares impassively as I come to terms with the bombshell he has just dropped. Can he really be serious? Are the Chili Peppers really about to evict all revelers from their crazy punk funk party zone? Let's see. If, as White Zombie's Shauna Uzelt suggested, the Wild Hearts are a soap opera, then their little domestic disputes and kitchen sink dramatics make them the lovable and familiar Coronation Street of rock. But the Red Hot Chili Peppers are in a different league entirely. One where Beverly Hills 90210 meets the Muppets meets the Playboy Channel. Take a look at their history. One guitarist OD'd on heroin, Hillel Slovak. One almost lost his sanity, John Frusciante. Two others, Jesse Tobias, Eric Marshall, simply found being a Chili Pepper too hot to handle. The band hang out with superstars like Madonna and Johnny Depp. They've appeared in The Simpsons and vocalist Anthony Kiedis and bassist Flea have graced the silver screen with their uh, unique acting skills in Point Break and My Own Private Idaho respectively. There have been light bulbs on heads, sucks on cocks and parties on pussies. All good clean fun, obviously. But recently darker stories have been circulating. Rumours of internal friction and cancelled tours, of band members seeking to relocate from LA and hard drug abuse raising its ugly head again. In Kerrang 603, we ran a story suggesting that everyone's favourite LA loons were to split up after recording one more album together. The quartet were reportedly more than a little annoyed by this. So we asked for an interview, just to set the record straight. Frankly, we weren't terribly hopeful. The band have nothing new to promote, they're on the final dates of a gruelling world tour and they're not overly fond of interviews in the first place. But word came back from their UK press office that the band were up for it. We'd catch them backstage at their gig at Wembley Arena. We'd begin at 7.30pm and finish at exactly 8.30pm. Everyone was to be interviewed separately for 15 minutes each. Now, traditional wisdom has it that bands only want to be interviewed separately if they can't stand to be in the same room together. Not that we're jumping to conclusions or anything, but well, let's just say this could be interesting. It's 7.40pm. I've been in the guest list queue outside Wembley Arena for 50 minutes and the security staff don't give a flying fuck that our interview was due to commence 10 minutes ago. This is not good. At 7.50pm, I'm finally ushered into the backstage hospitality area where I catch the first glimpse of various chilies socialising with friends and crew. Here you can get a glass of water for £1.20, which uh, where I come from is called extortion. Not hospitality. Thanks, but no thanks. We move on through to a quieter room at the back, where alongside the traditional salad, fruit and soft drinks rider, there's a small drum kit, guitar amp and a large roadie tending to one of Flea's broken basses. No sooner have I sat down on the black leather couch than the imposing figure of Chad Smith strides into the room, lighting up a cigar as thick as my wrist. Chad seems like a nice guy. Chili's guitarist Dave Navarro later describes him as one of the most beautiful people I know. But with the clock ticking away, we've no time for dicking around with pleasantries. So Chad... Are the rumours true? Yeah, we're spitting after this show, he says. It's kind of a relief that the years of hell are finally over and I can get on with uh, real life instead of being a spoiled kid living in a bubble in a sea of retarded sexuality. Perhaps at this point, it would be appropriate to mention that Chad takes the piss a lot. Sample question. What do you do away from the chilies? Sample answer. Starts riots in Trafalgar Square because I'm a sore loser at football. He'll chat about bands he admires to Who Beastie Boys Neil Young. His love of scuba diving and motorbike riding and his tentative plans to record soundtrack material with Axl Rose. But ask him anything vaguely serious about life in the chilies and he'll generally make jokes and give random answers. 
I'm the one guy who loves touring and playing though, he admits in a rare sensible moment. We used to play 40 dates in 40 days and have a blast. But now that we're old farts, we fly around doing two shows a week and then whinge about how tough it is. It's bullshit. To be honest, some of the fun has gone and it's more of a job now. It's frustrating when everyone's not in sync, but generally we all have the same goals and... At this point, Dave Navarro sticks his head around the door to get a light for his cigarette. Dave, what's going to be the happiest day of your life? asked Chad. Tomorrow fucking morning when I go back to LA, get out with this stupid outfit and ask Perry Farrell, Dave's one-time partner in the legendary James Addiction, for a job, the guitarist replies with a smile. I think by now, we can presume that the split rumours are a little shaky, but we won't receive any more clues from the Chili's likeable drummer. The band's US press girl Helena pops in and says firmly, Flea's ready now, and when Flea's ready, he wants to go immediately. Point taken. See ya, Chad. Like all true rock stars, Michael Balzeri, aka Flea, knows how to make an entrance. Shirtless, he skateboards into the room, attacks the drum kit in a blur of bare flesh and tattoos, leaps across the room in one bound and then, fixing me with his piercing intense gaze, he roars, So are you going to write something shit about us? Depends on what you say. Have a seat. You imagine you know Flea, hyperactive king of the slap bass and totally manic fool, right? And then he starts talking about politics in Northern Ireland, his love for his daughter, hardcore legends for Gazzy and the Chili's involvement in Beastie Boy, Adam Yaunch's recent concert for Tibet in San Francisco, Flea. Some have called us the least political band in the world, but to me creating beautiful music automatically makes you anti-racism, anti-sexism and anti-war. And you begin to realise that there's a lot more to the man than his public persona. He may pepper his conversation with LA speak about spirituality, beauty and artistry, but Flea comes across as an intense, yet humble and intelligent guy. Flea's refusal to do another US tour to promote the One Hot Minute album doubtless fueled the Chili's to split rumours, so what's so bad about touring? I hate it, he says. It's creatively unhealthy. You play the same shit every night and become a cliche of yourself. I want to play new music, not these songs over and over again. I never want to stop growing as a musician, and that's impossible when you're on the road all the time. So would you prefer it if the Chili Peppers became a purely studio-based project? No, we'll always play concerts, but a bare minimum if I can help it. When we're having fun and rocking, it's unbeatable, but a lot of times it's a drag, and this band should never be a drag. There are reports that you're going to leave your uh, beloved LA and move to Australia. Well, LA is a pretty disgusting place. I've just built a house on a surfing beach in Australia, which would be a much nicer place to bring up my daughter, so it's quite possible I'll move. Could that make things even more difficult for the band? This band isn't even close on a priority scale, he laughs. This is just a rock band. Who cares? It'll come and go. I'm proud of it, but it's only a fucking rock band. My kid is way more important than this band ever was or will be. That sort of comment doesn't do much to dispel the rumours, does it? Who gives a fuck? I could survive without the band, but I love the Chili's and I have no intention of stopping. So for the record, you're not splitting. Flea grins broadly and leans into the tape recorder microphone. Of course we are. Cheers. Hey dirtbag, and good evening to you, guitar genius bloke. Dave Navarro strolls in with his red dressing gown billowing behind him and stretches out his hand in greeting. If the devil played in the rock band, he'd look like Dave Navarro. Tanned, lean, dangerously sexy. Dave was the ref monster behind the incredible Jane's Addiction and the guy who turned down $1 million to join Guns N' Roses. He's probably the finest guitarist in modern rock and also a self-confessed moody bastard. I adopt the go softly approach. I saw Porno for Pyros last week, Dave, and they were amazing. That's like telling me I saw your ex-girlfriend with another guy and she looked beautiful. Right, I remove size 9s from my mouth. 
Dave lights up another cigarette. Guitarists in the Chili's tend to have as much fun as drummers in Spinal Tap, so are you enjoying life at the moment, Dave? There are days I wish I wasn't born and wasn't in this band, he says, and then other days I'm thrilled to be here. Sometimes I think it's worked out better than I expected, and other times I reckon it hasn't worked out at all. There's always some area of what we're doing creatively, commercially, artistically that I hate. At times, it's just the money that keeps me going. That's a pretty honest admission. I know it's not cool to talk about money, we're supposed to be tortured artists, but I'm just as fucking superficial as the next guy. When you're lying in the hotel room, unable to sleep, missing your girlfriend and family, you start thinking, what the fuck am I doing? But then you think, okay, I'm getting X amount of dollars and that pulls you through. We've been touring for 10 months and working on this album for three years. That's why Flea and I refuse to do another US tour. Presumably, you've heard the stories about the band splitting. Well, Flea and I both want to pursue other creative musical ventures and I think people are assuming that we don't want to do the chilies anymore, but I don't think that's true. You don't think it's true? I'm completely open to the idea that this could fall out from under me in a minute, he says, but I'm also open to the notion that I'll be doing this for another couple of years. You don't seem terribly optimistic about the future though. Dave shrugs and spreads his arms out wide. Whatever happens, happens. We've hit some hard times in the past, but there's no animosity between any of us. We just don't need to be in each other's faces 24-7 when we're not on tour. We need a break. That's the bottom line. It's now 8.30pm and Anthony Kiedis has just entered the room. We're running late and there are still questions to be asked, but Anthony is not Jolly Jim the Joker at the moment. He's been seeing acupuncturists, osteopaths and massage therapists all week after landing on his back on a monitor in Prague and cracking bones. His opening words are, I've gone from having the greatest time of my life to wanting to kill myself. It's hardly an appropriate or sensitive moment to pose my next question, but there have been rumours, Anthony, that you've been using heroin again in recent weeks. In recent weeks? Not true. What about recent months? Not true, he says. It's well known that I've had my ups and downs, but every time I've gone back to using, the same horrific detached life was waiting for me. I've been there and hated it. I've completely exhausted my capacity for drug and alcohol abuse. And when I do it now, it makes me insane and unhappy. And I don't want to feel like that anymore. The Chili Peppers were formed by high school friends Anthony Flea, the late Hillel Slovak and Jack Irons, now in Pearl Jam. Anthony admits that the band's early days were more fun, but insists he's still enjoying the Chili experience. When I go into Flea's hotel room and he has a guitar, he smiles, we close the door and the world disappears. That's the best buzz I have in my life and the only one I need right now. But why are you all doing interviews separately now? It's just easier to communicate this way. It's not like we don't like each other. It's just that this way everyone can have their say. You're not enjoying this, are you? Anthony gives a bored shrug. I don't care how I'm perceived by people who read magazines, he says. But Chili Peppers fans will buy the magazine this week because you're on the cover. Doesn't that matter? People are tuned in to us for our lyrics and live shows and they understand us as artists without the help of media knuckleheads. So why do interviews? Because I get asked to do them and I'm too much of a pussy to refuse, he cracks. I like having conversations, but most interviewers don't give a fuck what you're saying. What's the point of spewing up the same bullshit in another rigid anal questionnaire? It's half an hour to showtime, so we'll bring this particular anal questionnaire to a close. And... Things do appear a little darker and more serious in the Chili Peppers right now, but after months on the road, much of that can be attributed to a frazzled end of tour feeling. Certainly, as you watch them tearing Wembley Arena apart, you don't get the impression of a band on the verge of imploding. Chances are, they'll return next year harder and hornier than ever. But then, on planet Chili Pepper, anything can happen. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Live, and the first live 
<laughs> reviewed this week, the first concert reviewed this week, is Lollapalooza at the Downing Stadium, Randall's Island, New York, on Wednesday, July the 10th. This one is reviewed by Don Kay and Brian Ives, and this gets four out of five. Despite all the media frenzy about the decidedly hard-rocking approach this year's Lollapalooza has taken, some critics claim the festival has betrayed its alternative roots. The crowd here on this small island next to Manhattan is a well-blended mix of alternative kids, punks and metalheads. It's also not exclusively a boys club either, as some Midwest dates were reported to be. Here thousands of girls cheer their musical heroes too, and as in previous years, the requisite freak shows, s and tents, smart drinks, booths, otherworldly carnival attractions and the mysterious chili tent are all on hand, lending an amusement park feel to the proceedings. Sure Lollapalooza has nothing to do with real alternative music anymore, but does anyone know exactly what that is? It sure isn't Psychotica, whose connections, one of their label executives is also part owner of Lollapalooza, surely landed them their opening slot. Their early stage time meant most people missed their slot, but frontman Paul Briggs's theatrics and the band's bottom-heavy sound seem to be stretching for a little piece of the Stooges' magic. A few strong songs would be in order as well. Muscular tones are in abundance during the Screaming Trees set, which features ex-Kaius man Josh Homme on guitar to beef up the trees' already dense sound. The new material from the brilliant Dust album benefits from his presence, as do the older songs, but Mark Lanigan's well-worn voice and the solid arrangements that make the trees' return so welcome. Following a martial arts display by the mysterious Shaolin monks, Rancid take the stage complete with horn section and organist borrowed from the stubborn All-Stars, one of New York's premier ska supergroups. Lars Fredrickson and crew draw mostly from their recent and outcome the Wolves set with songs like Ruby Soho and Roots Radical, commanding the crown with ease and earning the first truly enthusiastic response of the day, despite the hot sun beating down on the masses. If you've ever seen the Ramones before and you might not see them again, if they hold true to their farewell tour threat, you'd know exactly what the crowd got today. Lots of 1-2-3-4s and classic punk energy packed into an hour-long set that incorporates just about every classic the brothers ever wrote. Blitzkrieg Bop, Sheena is a punk rocker, Rockaway Beach, Rock and Roll High School, they're all there. The one band that everyone on the tour cites as an influence. The Ramones are the same as they ever were and thank the gods of rock and roll for that. Local rappers with the Wu-Tang Clan are afforded a warm response from the crowd despite their drastic departure from the rest of the day's music. Over on the side stage, Girls Against Boys clearly win the day with their greasy, unbearably tense groove rock. The other second stage acts, including ex-Silverfish singer Leslie Rankin's new band Ruby, multicultural rockers Corner Shop, and the Black Crows-esque mainstream rocker the Beth Hart Band don't fare as well. Back on the main stage, Soundgarden are the day's second biggest attraction, and their set is timed perfectly to coincide with the setting of the sun. Plowing through 13 songs, the band sprinkle newies Pretty Noose, Burden in My Hand, and the tremendous Ty Cobb in between a slew of old hits, sounding enormous and certainly much more energetic than their last New York show, which was a lethargic performance ruined by incredible heat. Matt Cameron and Ben Shepard make for an ominous, monolithic rhythm section, while Chris Cornell bellows his heart out. If there's one problem with Soundgarden, it's that they don't seem very comfortable on large stages at outdoor festivals. While Soundgarden seems slightly intimidated by the vastness of a festival, Metallica thrive on it. It's clear from the moment they hit the balls that they are ready to perform a notch or two above everybody and everything that preceded them. Incredible sound and awesome performances from all four members bolster a set that includes the opening blast of So What. 
prefaced uh, here by a snatch of corrosion and conformities albatross. Sad but true, Creeping Death, Enter Sandman and a host of other classics. The new songs they play including Ain't My Bitch, 2x4 and Until It Sleeps sound heavier and better than they did on the disappointing Load album, which bodes well for the future. But by the time they climax with a storming version of Motorhead's Overkill, after an exit of Detroit Rock City in honour of the uh, summer's other huge tour, Metallica have captured the crowd once and for all. Pah! So much for alternative music. Next we have Red Hot Chili Peppers supported by No Doubt at Wembley Arena London on Thursday July the 11th. Reviewed by Liz Evans, this one gets 4 out of 5. Couple No Doubt silly, ditzy, lightweight mock rock songs with a lot of idiotic jumping around and you have a clear idea of how irritating their live performance is. Vocalist Gwen Stefani looks as if she had the sort of Beverly Hills upbringing where daddy indulged her slightest whims and high school klutzes fell at her feet. The rest of the band bounce around like fools during their horrible set and the whole thing is simply unbearable. If No Doubt insist on airing their collective lack of talent, they really should do it as far away from a stage as possible. Thankfully, the Chili Peppers provide a complete contrast. Consummate professionals with an unbroken line in pure, unadulterated funk rock. They know exactly how to stir it up. Striding on stage wearing an assorted mixture of robes, gold encrusted underpants and leather jeans, they leap immediately into Give It Away, yanking the entire crowd to its feet and setting the tone uh, way high for the night. Beneath a curious array of overhead lamps, which look like something from Alice in Wonderland, and before a massive screen onto which is projected everything from footage of fleas swimming underwater to a Native American tribesman dancing in full costume, the chilies stamp it out with customary enthusiasm. Flea goes butt crazy, his knickers hanging off his hip after just one song, and landing in the audience after three. Vocalist Anthony Kiedis is as supremely in command as ever, while guitarist Dave Navarro is cool personified. Girlfriends, kids and mates watch from the side of the stage and the atmosphere is warm, relaxed and supercharged. Whipping through the pelvic grind of blood sugar sex magic and the carnal plea of suck my kiss, the Chilis then calm the mood for a rendition of the super smash hit Under the Bridge, which attracts the biggest cheer of the night. Solo spots are enjoyed by Navarro and Flea who manages to slip in a short burst of anarchy in the UK at one point and a blinding cover of Jimi Hendrix's Manic Depression is resurrected for part of the encore. Flea's naked somersaults ensure the deranged humour is still intact. Kiedis' strong arm dance moves inspire an arena full of fired up imitations and everyone gets showered in glitter towards the end. After a truly stunning show, which if rumours are right might be the last time this band ever graced Britain with their tongue-in-cheek testosterone driven havoc, the Chili's bow out in spectacular fashion. Navarro hands his uh, guitar over to the front row and drummer Chad Smith together with a butt naked Flea proceed to trash his equipment. The sight of Flea, utterly undressed, throwing bits of drum kit around the stage is absolutely hysterical. What better way to ensure no one forgets you? Next up we have Dogstar at the Shepherd's Bush Empire London on Tuesday July the 16th. Reviewed by Claire Dowse, this one gets 3 out of 5. By rights, Californian trio Dogstar should be down the road at the borderline right now, peddling their pleasant if somewhat bland brand of US alternative rock to a half full house of passers-by and record company execs. Instead, The Empire has been sold out for weeks for a band who haven't even released a single record. The sounds of female screams are literally deafening and outside the ticket touts are counting the cash and preparing for holidays in the Caribbean. Oh, didn't I mention that the bass player of Dogstar is called Keanu Reeves? Yes, 
It's the same Keanu Reeves who is currently the world's most famous movie icon. The man who can command £10 million uh, to make one film. A man who could buy John Bon Jovi, Metallica, Pearl Jam, Def Leppard and everyone else ever featured in this magazine with his spare change. So what's he doing here? Dogstar is Keanu's hobby, something he probably started for a laugh between collecting his checks. There are two other blokes in Dogstar, but being brutal, not one single person in this 99.9% .9 female crowd is interested in them. Frontman, Brett Dunrose, who looks like an extra from Beverly Hills 90210, might have a pleasingly raw voice and be able to handle his guitar with a certain fluid grace. And drummer, Rob Melhouse, he's the one at the back who looks like action man, ladies, pounds away happily, but it's Keanu Reeves who everyone's here to see. So can they play? Well, yes. And for anyone who's enamoured of the current crop of middle American blue collar grunge like rockers, Dogstar are a surprisingly palatable prospect. Think the Goo Goo Dolls, better than Ezra. Check out the bad finger cover mid-set and enjoy the rumbunctious honestly anyway. It's all very generic, not unpleasant, competent, but what about Keanu? The world's most famous movie idol ambles onto the stage and proceeds to spend the next hour staring at his feet as he plays. He has small feet for a tall bloke, but rather large hands and a limp. As soon as he takes a drink or throws a half smile at the hysterical crowd, a dozen silly females faint. Keanu smiles some more. He's wearing a black unbuttoned shirt and slacks. Every so often a piece of lingerie lands in his vicinity and a roadie, whose sole task seems to be to remove the unwanted undergarments, rushes on and takes them away. Oh, and Keanu plays bass, and not that badly. Did I mention that? And finally this week we have Neurosis, supported by Unsane at the Highbury Garage London on Friday, June 28th. Reviewed by Morat, this one gets 5 out of 5. While Unsane continue to offer the most disturbing album covers on the planet and all the time heading further and further in the same musical direction as Helmet, Neurosis remain truly unnerving. They are the lift music in the elevator to hell. It's not just the atmospheric backdrop projections, loop tapes of suicide victims, the ghostly suffocating images, the general low light sinister ambiance. It's more than that. Neurosis are genuinely disturbing. Of course, this Bay Area 5 piece are crushingly heavy. They might be one of the bands that Sepultura pilfered some of their ideas from, but their delivery owes as much to psychology as it does to music. There are uh, peripheral noises like the detuned radio at the beginning of the monstrous Lost that get inside the crowd's heads and fuck with their minds. Believe it. Neurosis are what the PMRC have been looking for for years and what the FBI have known about even longer. Made Up Buffoon's Cradle of Filth, also in town tonight, have much to learn about making scary music. That said, however, psychotic, trance-inducing, twisted car wreck metal has a limited appeal. Neurosis' audience of freaks remains constant, but it's doubtful that it will grow. Jesus, even if they're one of your favourite bands, it's not easy to listen to them. If you like heavy music, it doesn't come much heavier. But remember, the lift goes all the way down. Hearts of Darkness Three years after their last live show, Alice in Chains are back on stage in front of 40,000 fans in Detroit. They're still dark and intense and still plagued by rumours about singer Lane Staley. Liz Evans steps into their weird, seedy world. One of America's most violent cities, Detroit lies a stone's throw from the Canadian border. Once the burgeoning centre for the US automobile industry before the Japanese invasion hit hard in the 80s, it's now the country's third murder capital after DC and Los Angeles. It's heavy here, you can feel it in the air. No one walks the streets, not even downtown, especially not if they're female, sane and familiar with the area. This might vary in 
uh, defences put forward in Detroit's favour by numerous taxi drivers who swear that the place is merely suffering from a bad rap. There are burnt out neighbourhoods here where those same cabbies won't stop during day or night. Carjacking, where vehicles full of gang members pull up alongside their victims, point guns at them and demand their money, is a popular pastime in these districts, which are characterised by tumble-down dwellings and shabbily dressed kids playing on the pavements. Typically, these areas are poverty-stricken and populated by ethnic minorities, always the ones to sustain the biggest casualties of urban life. But this weekend, a different buzz has gripped the heart of Detroit. The troubled reality of inner-city survival has given way to a cartoon fantasy made flesh. The reformed and fully made-up kiss have come to town, bringing with them a circus that includes utterly preposterous black and silver costumes, a magic box full of pyrotechnics and dazzling lights. And best of all, Alison Chains, a band who haven't hit the road in three long and often frustrating years. I thought it was pretty cool that we were asked to do these dates, says Alison Chains' tall spindly guitarist Jerry Cantrell, the day after the opening Detroit date at the cavernous Tiger Stadium. I didn't give a fuck where it was, declares drummer Sean Kinney, radiating with health now he's quick drinking. I was just so excited that we'd all agreed to play. I mean, I like kissing everything, but really, it was just about getting back on the road again. Sitting in a sterile hotel room 68 floors above the Detroit River, both Cantrell and Kinney are relaxed and understandably relieved to be in action as a band again. Three years off the road is a long time by anyone's standards, although the break gave everyone time to write and record Alice in Chains, and more importantly, to recuperate after their ridiculously intensive 18-month dirt tour. I don't think we'll ever tour that extensively against this Cantrell now. We've got to take care of everyone's health and sanity. At the end of the dirt tour, I was ready to stay home for a while, says Kinney, but for six months, not three years. But still, if everybody can't agree to do something, and if we're not all there to give everything, I don't respect people who come to town and do it just for money. I will never do that. You put your life into the band, he continues, and that was one of the struggles for us. I definitely feel better now that I have a life outside of that, but what's missing for me now is playing live, because if I had that too, I'd take better care of myself. We haven't had time to work out the right balance between touring and living our lives. It takes time to learn how to do that shit, says Jerry. You fuck up and so you figure out what not to do anymore. But I don't know if you ever really get it totally down. It's good to keep striving for that balance, though, and it's good for us as people because playing is a part of how we communicate as musicians. It's like saying something you couldn't normally say outright, verbally. It's deeper than words. Oh my God, I can't believe I just fucking brought it all down to an extreme song. Depth and intensity of emotion are the true powers behind Alice in Chains' songs. Next to Kiss, the all-time party band, they seem like an even more serious option, despite Sean's claims that they're just fucking around. As people, Alice in Chains can goof it up with the best of them, when the mood's right, but their music is undeniably an all-encompassing dark force, which provides the ultimate juxtaposition to Kiss's chicks and cards fizzle. Although, like most American kids, both Jerry and Sean grew up on the comic book superheroes of rock. I used to kiss out all the time, Kinney recalls. Me and my sister used to dress up for Halloween and I had tour books from 1977, 1978 and 1979. I was trying to get the band to sign them last night, but they just kind of blow in, all made up before the show so we didn't get to hang out with them. I love Kiss as a kid too, says Cantrell. They were my wallpaper. I had a little ACDC corner and maybe a couple of Van Halen shots on my wall, but it was mostly all Kiss. I was totally into Ace Freely. Needless to say, playing in front of 40,000 people as a support act for their childhood heroes gave Alice in Chains a huge adrenaline rush. I was pretty relaxed and mellow until the second song and then I got nervous, says Jerry. 
after the last tour, we'd become like fucking robots. But you can imagine, after not playing for three years, what the effect was like. With all the butterflies and stuff, it was wild. I wasn't nervous in Sis Kinney, but I've been having little anxiety attacks all week, so I guess I got it out of my system. Amidst the chaos of Kitty's big night, with huge security guards leading everyone a fine song and dance, and Smashing Pumpkins Billy Corgan and Skid Row Sebastian back and his wife ligging backstage, Alice in Chains managed to look and sound supremely cool. It's so fat live, you forget how thick the sound is when you don't do it for a while, says Jerry, casting his mind back to the show. But when you're in the middle of it, it's like, what the fuck is going on, Ed Sean? It's like a depressing, thick, uh, heavy blanket. We don't blow anything up, though, he laughs, determined to lighten the tone. If we wore matching shiny spacesuits and blew shit up, we would be huge. But they wouldn't be Alice in Chains. And reviving the full-on touring and recording Alice in Chains is all that anyone really wants to do right now. With their home lives relatively sorted, despite various battles with alcohol and other things, the breakup of relationships and the usual everyday toil, the band are consolidating themselves individually, but it's not altogether easy. We've spent the last year trying to live a normal life, says Jerry. It's something you need, but it's also alien and constricting. After years of being nomadic, it's weird worrying about your house being busted into and your animals being fed properly. But I love it. It's totally cool. Before Jerry moved into his house, which is situated 40 minutes outside Seattle, he spent nine years living in the city's music bank, the rehearsal complex where he met Lane Staley. The basement of Pearl Jam manager Kelly Curtis's house and numerous friends' apartments. Sean's experiences were similar. All of Alice in Chains are more settled these days, but they've each had their own demons to bury. None more so than frontman Lane Staley, who has long been plagued by rumours about his ongoing struggle with heroin addiction. No doubt Lane's worryingly ghostly appearance on stage in Detroit will fuel further speculation, if not genuine anxiety about his condition. But his bandmates no longer care what anyone chooses to think. That's Stone Temple Pilots' problem now, Sean says with a grin, and more than a hint of irony referring to their singer Wyland's similar troubles. You can say what you want, shrugs Jerry. It's all out there. We cause a lot of it by talking about it and being the type of people we are. That's just the way it is. But we're not going to apologise for it and we don't have any regrets. There's enough to fill a few books at least. It's a fucking intense, bizarre thing. We're in a weird situation and it just gets weirder. But that's cool. That's what I fucking signed on for. Otherwise, I'd have become a dentist. I wanted to see all that crap, all that seedy, dark shit. But you can't ride it forever. It will bite you and it's been a long ride. And it's not even over yet. Despite what anyone might tell you, Alice in Chains are in this for the duration. Feedback, and there is an absolute ton of letters this week. I'm not going to read them all out. Most of them are just pissing and moaning. I mean, of course I'm going to read those ones out. They're always the best ones. Anyway, the letter of the week begins. I'm a female bassist in an otherwise male band. We've been gigging in the Midlands for three years now and have recently had some record company notice. So why does the male-dominated society of rock still look down on me? Being female in this industry is almost a kiss of death. For example, people assume that you have a following because you are sexy and that your fans just want to see a bit of cleavage or even that you are shagging your manager so that the other members of the band can't kick you out. Females who use their sexuality on stage should be admired. What's the difference between a man going to see Drain because of their looks and women going to see Bon Jovi because they fancy John? Drain have been getting some stick recently, but if there were more female artists about it, none of this crap would be a problem. Respect is something that everybody has to earn. Male, female, black or white. It is hard enough to become successful in this business as it is. 
without the male ego trying to stay at the top of the line. Women like Shauna Uzel, Courtney Love, Darcy and the rest should get some credit for making it through the industry bullshit and putting some of the little boys in their place. Kerry Smith, great bar. What the fuck is it with you and Bon Jovi? Do they have strawberry flavoured dicks or something? Over the past year you've printed enough Jovi posters to wallpaper the Albert Hall, so give it a fucking rest. And by the way, Richie thick as shit Sambora only scored 11 out of 25 in the Kerrang Challenge, not 13. Making him the greatest dumbass to do the quiz so far. Take your heads out of your ass, Rich Brant Bristol. Even if Richie did score 11, it would still have been two better than skin from Skunk and Nancy, which you'd know if you were paying attention. Editor. Why is everyone so fucking miserable these days? Every week I read feedback and it's full of people complaining. If it's not Bon Jovi, it's Metallica. People even dare to contest the greatness of the Wild Hearts. For fuck's sake, stop your whining. Why bother to spend £1.50 on Kerrang if all you're going to do is pick through it and complain? Life's too short. I think Kerrang has a range of stuff for everyone into decent music. If you're not happy with it, stop buying Kerrang and stop complaining. Mind you, if you don't buy Kerrang, what the fuck will you have to complain about? Laura Nitro. Undisputed Attitude. That's the name of Slayer's new album and that's what they've got. Their gig at the Brixton Academy was blinding. To cut a long story short, I felt the need to say nice one, Kerrang. Thanks for setting up this one-off gig. I praise you for doing something right for once. Nick Haringey. Cheers, Nick. Nothing like a good backhanded compliment, editor. Gagging for a shagging. Oh, Kerrang. I'm fed up with all those wanky ponces you have in gagging for a shagging. Let's have a real man for a change like James Sex God Hetfield of Metallica. He could hold me until it sleeps any day. The future Mrs. Hetfield, hell. RE Feedback July 6th issue. Excuse me, Mr. Pissed Off Corn fan. Stephen Milne and Chris and Allen who want a free kebab. You say Bon Jovi and Def Leppard are wank. That they're rich uh, bastards and are too old. If they're rich, they can't be wank because it means that a lot of people are buying their albums. And if Bon Jovi are fucking wank, why do they get voted best band in the world in the Kerrang Readers poll instead of Corn? The only wangers are you lot. If you don't like seeing the best band ever to walk the face of the earth in the best magazine, go kiss a donkey's ass. A loyal Def Leppard and Bon Jovi fan. P.S. Is it true that Bon Jovi are to split? If so, why? No, Bon Jovi are not splitting, but they are taking two years off to do solo albums, paintings, movies. Don't worry, they'll be back. Editor. I just want to say something to Rusty Antichrist who wrote in slagging off the Manic Street Preachers. The Manics do not cross-dress. That was a long time ago, but they were young and silly, but still brilliant. All they do now is write beautiful, intelligent songs. Metallica are wankers, and so are you. Ross, I hope you have a terrible accident. Rebecca, Scotland. There seems to be no shortage of letters slagging off Terravision, Bon Jovi, the new Metallica, etc. But did a recent letter of the week get that title because it started off saying how wonderful the Manic Street Preachers are? I think so. Well, I reckon the Manics are shit. I didn't care much for them before Richie disappeared and I don't give a toss about them now. Why don't they just get another guitarist and move on instead of pissing about and releasing crap like everything must go? Sue Hartford. P.S. Having seen the Karanga Awards results, it seems that the Manics won nothing. I rest my case. Full marks to Tico Torres issue 605 for his answer to the pathetic how long can you last question in the last word. I don't know a single bloke who would admit to lasting only one minute on a regular basis, despite it being the truth. And as for Kirk Hammett's last word interview a couple of issues before, he should hang his head in shame for his answer to the last band trip question, as should Kerrang for asking it. 
He doesn't have bad trips because he can afford decent gear. Unlike the millions of kids out there being drawn into hard drugs. Some as young as 12. Advocating the use of drugs is not cool. Particularly from a member of an influential and highly respected band like Metallica. The only thing drugs have ever contributed to music is the premature deaths of many great talents. Sad but true, Enfield. Ill communication. The Excess Files. Seven days, beer. Seven gigs, more beer. 20 bands and yes, even more beer. This is Kerrang's week on Planet Rock. Jason Unlop shares a close encounter of the blurred kind with Fu Manchu, Pitchshifter, Manhole Entombed and more. Tuesday, July the 9th. Fu Manchu, Fireside, DBH, Camden Underworld. You Kerrang guys are always trying to dig up scandal about drink and drugs, smells Fu Manchu bassist Brad Davis. If my mum saw me saying anything like that, she'd kill me. What's the problem, sir? Only asked you how many tons of hash you'd smoked since the release of your album? Some people. This week, however, Brad is not wrong. This feature has little to do with reviewing gigs and everything to do with having a great laugh at all seven post-Karang Awards gigs. Alcohol may be involved. Tonight, Karang swag bags are snapped up by 25 coupon-clutching early birds, as is the case throughout the week. Meanwhile, Sweden's firesides seem like nice blokes, although securing a quotable line is difficult. Asking frontman Christopher Astrom if he's having fun produces the no-nonce answer, yes. But Fireside are not straight edges, and Christopher admits to having partaken of Fu Manchu's magic tobacco on more than one occasion. After the Foo Fighters winning set of Black Sabbath song, it's into theirs and Fireside's adjacent dressing room, where beer and the odd spliff are doing the rounds. Bassist Brad has discovered the British expression for sideburns, sideies. I once got mistaken for Gaz from Supergrass, he says. It was two girls, two, so I should have gone along with it. We're all kicked out at 11pm and the band stumble off. Not to be deterred, promoter Steve Strange and East West Records rock lord Dante Bonuto suggest tailing them by car. We'll have one drink at each hotel, Burble Strange. We'll stick to that rule, at least until we get to the second one. Tragically, Fireside's tiny Belgravia hotel has no bar. We suddenly realise that we are standing in reception asking for Swedish boys. Time to leave. Fu Manchu have also retired over at the infamous Columbia Hotel. However, the Sisters of Mercy's keyboardist Dave is in this for the long run, as is Ray Conroy, Fu Manchu's record label boss. Ray is hammered on large brandies. He abuses everyone and makes entertaining claims like A, Terrorvision have let themselves go and become fat, and B, he once, albeit indirectly, allegedly caught crabs from Lemmy out of Motorhead, and C, he once watched a popular industrial star inject cocaine into his penis. I've actually got his cock somewhere, he says, somewhere about 4am. It's about this long, with a helmet at the bottom. Quite fantastic. Wednesday, July 10th. Pitch shifter, Apes, Pigs and Spacemen, King's Cross Splash Club. Pint-handed at 7pm, Apes' frontman Paul Miro recalls his favourite tale of hotel mischief. We broke into the room at his really slick businessman, he says, and came back down to the bar wearing his clothes. By the time he got security, we'd run upstairs, put his clothes back and come down again. He couldn't believe his eyes. Apes, Pigs and Spacemen play an acoustic set tonight due to misunderstandings which seem too bizarre to explain. But it deserves a mention, simply for being that rarity. A really good acoustic set. You don't get songs about going into a supermarket and wanting to shoot everyone at extreme gigs. Pitch Shifter's rampaging set is a painful experience, at least for singer J.S. Claydon. I thought I was going to blackout, he says afterwards in obvious discomfort. Some stage diver stood right on my fucking broken foot. The bones are seriously crushed. 
With that, the pro limps off, encountering all of Biohazard outside, who have arrived in time to miss the entire evening's proceedings. Paul Miro has long since vanished with Alison Chains' Jerry Cantrell and Sean Kinney and Exile Maiden guitarist Adrian Smith. Let's call it a night then. No, let's not insist Sorceride whatever frontman Nick Parsons. Let's get pissed at the Columbia. Sounds great. But we end up in the hotel's empty bar, unable to be served without room keys, staring at the ashtray. After half an hour, the whatever boys stumble off bickering. Apes drummer Sam Kerr rolls up later for a couple of bottles of Grolsch. Champion. Thursday, July 11th. Manhole. Near-death experience. Cynical smile. Hybrid garage. Some girl kept coming on stage and grabbing my fucking butt frowns, manhole singer Terry B. It's midnight after a storming set from the LA Maulers. Terry has just completed some interviews in which the words fuck and motherfucker were not underused. As we head towards the Chelsea Hotel, drain guitarist Flavia Cavill merrily fires a cap gun from the top of the manhole drain tour bus. Cubanate singer Mark Hill is also present, being one of Terry's best London mates. The two of them went on a press tour around Europe and became brother and sister, eventually. I hated the bastard when I first met him amidst Terry. I told all the journalists to treat him gently because he was really missing his boyfriend. And I told them that Terry was totally strung out on heroin, chuckles Mark. But it was great sitting there every day watching German interviewers ask, Und Terry, what is the difference between male and female hardcore? And she'd go, fuck you, motherfucker. Cue to a hotel suite, where there's a bottle of uh, Free Bowls brandy is gradually being drained. Everyone's favourite Beavis and Butter episode appears on TV. It's the one where Beavis pulls his t-shirt over his head and walks around his school yelling, I am Cornholio. Or Manholio, as Manhole bassist Rico dubs it. Jesus Christ, laughs Terry. We're also enthralled by this fucking thing. It's pathetic. Terry and Mark debate whether or not she threatened to show her breasts to a room full of uptight German businessmen. You're such a fucking liar, she shrieks. Okay, we'll put it to the vote, shrugs Mark. Who thinks Terry would do that then? Unfortunately for the plucky techno metal fusionist, we value our testicles too highly to speak. Friday, July the 12th. Send no flowers, done lying down, Real TV, Camden Underworld. Real TV deliver one of the week's best supports. During one song, the guitarist walks into the crowd, plays for a while, then fucks off for a leak. Gleeful spectators take turns to riff it up on his guitar before the mad axeman reappears, swinging from the rafters and grabbing someone's head with his feet. You'd expect headliner Send No Flowers to be a dour bunch by comparison, but singer Matt Bradbury could keep you entertained in the pub all night. After the gig, he reveals that he is now homeless after the band were kicked out of their squalid Bristol shithole. Put my bag on my back and I'm a snail, he grinned, slurping a backstage beer. I've got to try and remember which of my friends I haven't fucked off yet, but I'm glad to see the back of that house. I wish I could swing the demolition ball myself. People gig asking why our first album was so depressing, he continues, and I really wanted to take him into our house and say, this is where I wrote the fucker, but the next album will be great. We're happy enough to be taking the piss with new stuff like Heavy Downer. Bradbury recently wore a dress in front of 20,000 people at a gig in Estonia. None of the crowd had a problem with it, he says. Then an Australian guy came up to me in the hotel bar and said, take that fucking thing off. I think he just wanted to see my baps. With that, he and the boys roll back to Bristol in their enormous mobile snail shell. Saturday, July 13th. Drain. Scrap Iron Scientists. Polkus. King's Cross Splash Club. I haven't been totally sober in months, sighs drain drummer Martina Axon on their tour bus dressing room pre-gig. I don't even like the sight of beer now. The Swedes have been on tour with Fear Factory since May. Manhole have recently been booted off the bill, but Drain have diplomatically managed to remain friends with both sides. They might not be the most hedonistic hellraisers around, but as liggers, they excel. They attend every gig this week and leave no dressing room unturned. 
The only hiccup on this tour was when guitarist Flavia Cavill contracted tinnitus and took a month off. Drain temporarily replaced her with some bell-bottomed hippie bloke out of the Electric Boys and he weren't fine, apart from falling through the stage one night. Contrary to their depressing tunes, Drain are having so much fun they don't want to go home. I've got nothing back in Sweden, not even a cat, says singer Maria Scholholm. Things hot up on the bus when Entomb tumble through the door, royally pissed. Party time. Maria laughs as she recalls the last time she met their drummer, Nicky Anderson. He came up to me with a leak and asked me if I'd like to taste it. Nicky has no recollection of this or indeed his own name. Sunday, July 14th. Entombed, above all, dearly beheaded Camden Underworld. It's too hot. The hottest gig since Fear Factory at the Dome a few years ago. Sweat pours in buckets. It's also hot in the sense of great as Entombed blast a packed house. This proves it once and for all. Rave's dearly beheaded guitarist Steve Owens. Metal is not dead. Later, in Entombed's dressing room, Nicky is biting some incredibly sore-looking hand wounds while singer LJ Petrov looks on the verge of death. We deserve 5Ks just for making it to the end, he gasps. They also make it over to, surprise, the Columbia Hotel where they go up pints of beer like wild things. Conversation centers on the most memorable song titles of thrash metal, including Sodom's Volcanic Slut, Razor's Evil Invaders and Creator's Ripping Corpse, not to mention an ancient entombed song, Succulent Death. We thought that was great, says Petrov, until we looked succulent up in the dictionary. One of our new songs is called Run For Cock, claims Nicky unconvincingly. After a few more pints, Entombed sneak into the reception hall and rearrange the letters on the notice board. Guests in the morning will be greeted by the words Run For Cock and inform that checkout time is 6.66pm. Monday, July 15th. Downset, curb dog, consume, hybrid garage. The final day and a pig has shat in my head. Thankfully, Downset don't drink much, so this evening's dinner in a Cuban restaurant is quite sensible, apart from the vicious squeezing of a shrimp, which makes the unfortunate beast's eye pop out. The band are in high spirits, having sold out the garage. Lanky bassist James tells a story about being arrested in Massachusetts on Downset's current tour for their Do We Speak A Dead Language album. I went along the road from our hotel to use a phone, he recalls. I wasn't wearing my contact lenses, so I couldn't see a thing. Suddenly, all these floodlights came on and about seven cops got me down on the ground screaming, We've got you now, boy. We're going to fuck you so hard. The raging Rosers refused to believe that James was anything but a notorious carjacker until he persuaded them back to the hotel. Luckily, they didn't go to drummer Chris's room where a bong the size of Berlin was being smoked. Shortly, it is noted that Downset's press officer has yet to arrive with her credit card. If she doesn't show, suggests James, we'll flip this table over jump on everybody else's food, then run out screaming with our pants around our ankles. Cunning, but this doesn't happen. And over at the Swelterin Garage, the bands round off the week in utterly slamming style. Downset and Curbdog are staying at the Columbia, but the thought of going there again provokes nervous tremors. Anyone got a spare liver? Singles, and the singles this week are reviewed by Dave Everly, and there's a bloody ton of them. We start this week with Send No Flowers with their single Bitter Taste, this gets 2Ks. So what's all the fuss about? Send No Flowers are a slick professional exercise in soulless alternative music whose admitted proficiency is cancelled out by a terminally chronic dullness. Fair enough, Bitter Taste manages to cook up a mixture of post-grunge mumblings, cod industrial ramblings, and a whiff of a chorus with a modicum of flair. But it lacks verve sparkle, and a hundred other things that make a song worth listening to. Come back Wolfsbane, all is forgiven. Goo Goo Dolls with their single Long Way Down. This gets 4Ks. Now this is how it should be done. 
Despite having the collective charisma of a three-week dead haddock, the Goo Goo Dolls have somehow managed to cobble together a song so steeped in great melodies, it could almost have been stolen from Soul Asylum's lost classic Hang Time, which, when you think about it, is no bad move. Laced by Free Fish. This gets 4Ks. Okay, so Jeff Ament hasn't made enough money from his side project to give up the day job, but that doesn't necessarily mean Free Fish are without merit. The most accessible moment from the recently released debut album Laced is a sweet gentle lullaby built on immense hypnotic bass and stained with Robbie Rob's seductive rasp. There's no chance that it will set the world on fire, but as an interesting curio, they don't come much better. A with their single 5 in the morning, this gets 4Ks. Whoa, impressive. This debut single from Suffolk 5 Piece A is a kinetic brash ball of spasm-inducing funk-punk guaranteed to have you pogoing around your handbag before the first chorus has even had the chance to kick into gear. Keep an eye out for A. Center with their single Charming Demons. This gets 4Ks. Having ditched the little bloke with the number one crop, Sensor spring back with a feisty workout that layers surprisingly wild guitars on top of a rather sexy little trip-hop vibe without stumbling over its own cleverness in the process. Fresh hop? Anyone? Nope, didn't think so. Chaos UK with their single King for a Day. This gets 3Ks. The perfect antidote to Alanis Morissette's anemic caterwauling. Chaos UK have come up with this year's ultimate dole anthem. King for a day, skint for a fortnight. They shout over the top of a clattering racket that puts most of the other singles released this week into the shade. Thanks to its sheer couldn't give a fuckness. Are you listening, Alanis Morissette? Alanis Morissette with her single Head Over Feet. This gets 1k. Hands up, who thinks Alanis Morissette is nothing more than Pat Benatar for the 90s? Oh yes, she's radical. So radical in fact that she has to get Brian Adams' male songwriting partner to help pen most of her post-feminist angst anthems. Anyone who thinks Alanis Morissette is the second coming really should try getting out more. Head over feet is toss on toast with a large dollop of toss and not much toast. And the single of the week this week goes to Afghan Wigs with their single Going to Town This Gets 5Ks. Listen, the Afghan Wigs are just about the finest rock and roll band on the planet at the moment. Their Black Love album is a lipstick scrawled note from a gutter romantic, a slug of the very essence that makes love, lust and life so bittersweet. Steady on Dave, rest of the staff. Going to town, the second single from that record distills everything that makes the Wigs so special, then sprinkles it generously with a rolling funk vibe so towering cool it could keep a crate of beer on ice for a year and a day. Greg Dully is a genius and a god. And I claim my five pounds. The last word, the ultimate questions on life, sex and roast potatoes. This week, the Manics James Dean Bradfield talks to Paul Elliott. Last time you heard a song and thought, I wish I'd written that. The Universal by Blur. Obviously, I'm not a massive fan of Blur, but I couldn't deny that it was a great song and an amazing lyric. I hate it when somebody I don't admire writes a song that challenges you to write something as good as that. I took it quite personally. When I heard the Universal, I had a nervous twitch for a day after. Last time you saw Nottingham Forest play. Away at Tottenham. That was the last game I managed to see last season. It was the FA Cup. I had a brilliant seat right above the goal. We won in the penalty shootout. It was amazing. Nick is a Tottenham fan, but he didn't come with me. He knows more about sport than anybody in the entire music industry, but he doesn't actually like going to sporting events. He's a remote control man. After the penalties in the Tottenham game, Mark Crossley, Forest goalkeeper, ran the length of the pitch and dived on the floor. And right then I knew we wouldn't get to the cup final because the players celebrated too much. 
Last time, you made a complete arse of yourself. The other night, I went out with this girl to this dodgy French place for some food. The menu was all in French with English explanations underneath. In those situations, I develop a nervous twitch. I always feel like I'm going to knock things over or something. For some reason, I develop some kind of dyslexia. Suddenly, when I have to make a decision, words don't seem to make as much sense as they used to. I was looking at this thing and I thought, what the fuck is that? So I said to the waiter, Oi, what's chivy souffle? As I was saying it, I could uh, feeling a voice within me going, don't say it, it's chive souffle. As the words were coming out of my mouth, I just wanted to reclaim them. Last time you felt proud to be Welsh. That's a really hard one. It was probably when I watched a documentary about the Signing Valley. It's a coal pit that had been closed down and the miners used all their redundancy money to buy the pit back off the government for a million quid. And the first year, they ran it at a three million pound profit. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why did they close it down in the first place? Sometimes, the Welsh haven't got it in them to spell it out that we are a different country. There are so many risible Welshisms in English comedy folklore, but when I saw that documentary, I felt proud to be Welsh. Last time you went round your mum's for tea. I go back at least once every three weeks. My mum does the best roast potatoes. She pot boils them, then shakes them around to get them fluffy inside. Then she lets them cool down and she smears her hand with Marmite and coats the potatoes with a thin layer of it. It's gorgeous, the best. My mum's got a new trick now. She cooks chips in a wok. They're really soft on the inside and really golden brown on the outside. She's a brilliant cook, my mum. Last weird dream you remember. I've had too many bad ones lately. Last book you read. Concrete Island by J.G. Ballard. It's so relentless all the way through. You want the guy to escape from this situation, but the book doesn't offer any glimmer of hope. At the end, you're almost praying for a Hollywood ending. Please get the fucker out of it so I can just put the book down and forget about it. But the guy is left trapped. It still pisses me off. Last time you were crapping yourself with fear. The week of Design for Life was released. I felt like a wife coming back from maternity leave. I didn't know if anybody wanted me at my job anymore. When it went in at number two, it was quite life affirming. Last time you were in a fight. A year ago, I'd been in the club talking to a girl I knew and a boy reached over and took my drink and just looked at me and I said, what's wrong mate? And his friend put his arm across me and said, just leave him, he's mad. I was really annoyed, but I felt that my fighting days were over. My heart wasn't really in it. Then I got outside and tried to hail a cab on Charing Cross Road. And as a cab pulled in for me, some other boy pushes me out of the way and says it's his cab. By now, I could feel it boiling up inside me. I said, mate, this is my cab, fuck off. And he put his hand in my face and pushed me away. And that was it. I punched him straight away. And I was really sorry I did it. He had blood all over him and his girlfriend was shouting, you bastard. That was the last time. Last time you were spooked by a fan. I've had really crap scenarios with people coming up to me in the street, full on Richie files, saying point blank, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I'm like, you grew up with him, did you? You know him better than I do fine. How long can you last? I haven't got a clue and I don't really care. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record. It's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. Next up in Kerrang! we have albums. The first album reviewed this week is Mum, Music for Our Mother Ocean. This one is by Various and this one is reviewed by Kevin Roberts and it gets 3Ks. As Scouse comic Alexei Sal once spat, if Hitler had invaded Poland for Spina Bifida, it would have been okay. They say anything goes, so long as it's done in the name of charity. And as well-intentioned as charity albums may be, there comes a point when you just get fed up of giving. Of course, there's the age-old irony in your favourite musicians asking you to donate money to causes close to their hearts because, after all, they can't afford to do it. But that's another story. Mum, Music for Our Mother Ocean is a benefit album put together in support of the Surfrider Foundation, an organisation set up to help save the world's oceans from pollution. Featuring a host of bands as diverse as Porno for Pyros, 
the Beastie Boys, Pato Bantam and the Brian Setzer Orchestra. It's a pleasant, if slightly throwaway mix of cover versions, outtakes and live tracks. On Mum, big names nestle up next to lesser known bands. Silverchair cheer up their way through Surfing Bird. Yes, that's the song from the Bird's Eye Chicken advert. Pennywise kicked sand in the face of the Beach Boys with Surfing USA. And Soundgarden and Porno for Pirates both weigh in with previously released numbers My Wave and Barley Eyes respectively. Helmet's cover of Bjork's hit Army of Me is a predictable but fine reworking. While bringing up the rear are Everclear with the unreleased track Hateful, The Beastie Boys and Nettie's Girl, No Doubt Sailing On and Seven Merry Free Blackwing. Of the rest, The Unknown Sprung Monkey kickstart the album in fine style with a fabulously buoyant good times. While Primus are truly the turd on the beach of this collection, they're Mr. Know-It-All from the Frizzle Fry album, easily confirming the trio status as the most irritating band on the face of the earth. But the undoubted talking point is Pearl Jam, and their cover of 60s band The Silly Surfers' Gremmy Out of Control provides the biggest surprise. Certainly very silly, it's a relatively unmemorable song but a pretty memorable performance, thanks in large part to the authentic recreation of the 60s garage vibes that they also used on Leaving Here from last year's Home Alive compilation. It's also the least po-faced the band have ever been. Blessed with a looseness they rarely show and worth the cover price alone just to hear Stone Gossard sing, albeit unintelligibly, and shout cowabunga a whole lot. And what's more heartening, they even sound like they enjoy being in the band again. Weighing in at a hefty 18 tracks, at least three quarters of mum is relevant to Kerrang readers and the bulk of the rest is at, uh, at the very least interesting. And while by no means essential for fans of the bands featured, the charitable are just the plain curious there are certainly worse things you can invest your money in. Which just leaves one question, what the fuck is a Grammy? Next up we have Melvin's with their album Stag. This gets 4Ks and this one is reviewed by Malcolm Dunn. They've spent more than 10 years making perverse, intense, deeply disturbing music laced with a black sense of humour. Yet still the world hasn't quite latched onto the genius and self-deprecation of the Melvins. They're more known for the one-time patronage of Kurt Cobain than anything else, and Stag won't alter their state of affairs, which is probably the way this wonderfully ludicrous trio like it anyway. Stag is best defined as uncontrolled sanity. It sees the band lurching wildly from the psychedelic piss take of tripping the line, early Pink Floyd on the wrong drugs, through to the clandestine noise abuse of goggles, back down through the gears towards the sub-grunge grunt of the bit, and out again to the sonic youth-style artcore scramble of Black Bock. Diversity is the watchword here, yet it's a diversity that is oddly cohesive. At no point are you allowed to relax and accept what you're being offered. Every track literally challenges you to get up and take the damn thing off, or at least to skip onto the next one. It's as if this is an exercise in commitment and survival as much as a musical experience. Soup, for instance, is just a series of gloopy noises set against the background of eerie synthesizer tones that wouldn't be out of place in a 60s horror movie. And as this comes straight from the nagging noise of goggles, it really does call for a complete change of mindset. Then, just as you've adjusted your mentality into an ambient autopilot, King Buzzo hits you with the fiercely stripped down guitar of Buck Owens, and you're into the grey world of thrash metal. Then before you know it, the disturbing nursery rhyme chimes of Skin Horse have charmed you into an outburst of guffaws. But that's the Melvins for you. Not a band to actively court an audience, it's as if they've deliberately gone out to make the most unpleasant album possible in the hope that they will end up selling virtually no copies at all. It's as if the jokes on Atlantic Records were being brave daft enough to sign them up. And the Melvins are out to punish them. Stag is at once hilarious, unlistenable, yet strangely compelling. It will be one of the albums of 96, even though it will sell fewer copies than Saddam Hussein's autobiography in Kuwait. Why do you get the feeling that will give the band 
enormous satisfaction. Charts and the number one album this week, knocking Metallica's load off, it's Dust by Screaming Trees. Number one in the singles charts is Bad Actress by Terrorvision, and number one in the indie LPs is Play Games by Dog Eat Dog. The reader's top 10 this week comes from Dave Cave of Middlesbrough. His chart begins one, Shine and the Film, two, The Black Goddess Rises, Cradle of Phil, three, Black Number One Type and Negative, four, Stigmata Ministry, five, Ted Just Admitted Jane's Addiction, six, by Starlight Smashing Pumpkins, seven, Barley Eyes, Porn of the Pyros, eight, Love Under Will, Fields of the Nephilim, 9 Get Down Make Love 9 Inch Nails and 10 Mayonnaise Smashing Pumpkins. The star tracks this week come from Phil Collin of Def Leppard. His chart begins 1 Rich Old, D-Lo Habitual, Jane's Addiction, 2 Tiny Music Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop, Stone Temple Pilots, 3 Aretha, Aretha Franklin, 4 Various Bootlegs Prints and 5 Handful of Beauty by Shakti. Next week in Kerrang Back Issues, Nicked, Overdose, Dead. Rehab. Is rock killing your heroes? From Pantera's Fern Selma to the Smashing Pumpkin, Stone Temple Pilots, Blind Melon and Kurt Cobain, it's a shocking Kerrang! investigation that will affect every rock fan. Plus Civ, Curb Dog, Corm, Pearl Jam, Type of Negative, Alice in Chains and Ministry. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I look forward to talking to you all then. Hope you're doing well and uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Bye for now.